We do come to worship the name of the Savior, our King, our hope, and the one to whom we can turn. What a world. I just want to pray for the world as we get started this morning. Uh, we need the grace of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, and the presence of Christ in our lives. And uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful name of our Savior. And we thank you for what he endured for us. And now, Father, as we attempt to live for you, we pray for our world. The fighting, the killing, the death, the selfishness is rampant. I pray for believers in Ukraine, that you would give them hope in you, that you would give them strength, that you would keep them safe. We pray for the leaders involved in that country, around in the surrounding countries with, with the millions of refugees, that you would give grace and wisdom there. And for our leaders, that they would have wisdom to know how to deal with the situation. And above all, we pray for peace, and we pray for the exaltation of our Savior. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. That's our hope and our prayer. In your name, amen. Did you miss Revelation this week? I missed Revelation this week. Sorry. But I was also missing our old friend Matthew. And uh, the juxtaposition of those two texts and the style of literature was rather jarring to me. Uh, we began this journey through Matthew on April 4th, 2000, what year? 18. <laughs> now, if you're new, we've only had, this is message number 56. So it's only been a year's worth of messages spread out over four. So we've been out of it more than we've been in it, just to be fair to myself. We're going to pick up next Sunday morning with Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, with Jesus standing before Pilate. But, but I, need, I need to feel the pulse of Matthew again. And we need that we've been in Revelation, and we've, well, I don't know, we've been around the globe for the last four years. But, uh, but we need to... to I forget, and I, I assume you don't think about this as much as I think about this, and so uh, I want to just tell the story of Jesus as it got us to Revelation, uh, <laughs> Matthew 27, I really missed it, 27, 11, as you can tell, either that or I'm just a creature of habit, and I would vote B if I were you. So what do I want to accomplish as we wrap up this series? I, I want to challenge us to experience a transformation like Matthew experienced. What do I mean? Number one, who is Matthew? To explain him in modern terms, you can do it probably by now, he is the Han Solo of the New Testament. He's probably the most critical, Han Solo is probably the most critical character in the Star Wars saga. We follow his journey as a character from not caring about anything to actually caring about something. And this journey makes him very important because he is the barometer of the validity of the cause. You've heard that before, right? No. Okay, I'm glad we're doing this. <laughs> 
You've heard it before. When the movie opens, you don't really know, if, is this empire the good thing or is it the bad thing? Is this rebellion? Rebellions can be bad or they can be good. You don't know. And it is the journey of Han Solo as he navigates life that we figure out that the empire is bad and the rebellion is good. He's a smuggler. He's just trying to turn a profit with the empire in control. And he doesn't care about the rebellion at all. And as the movie plays out, we learn that somewhere down underneath all of this exterior, there is a heart that cares, that beats. And he will eventually care about something more important than himself. And it's that transformation which makes a very interesting story, as interesting as Star Wars can be. Oh. My point is this. The transformation of Matthew is a Han Solo transformation. Matthew is a Jew, thoroughly and completely Jewish. He starts on team, I don't care though. You know, I don't, I'll do anything to make a buck. And he becomes eventually on the team that says, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. As Matthew grows up, he has a choice to make. Matthew sees that he can go one of two ways. He can join the losing team, Team Israel, who is living under the subjugation of the Roman Empire, and he can be poor but have his conscience, or he can join Team Rome, which is the winning team, and be a tax collector and make all kinds of money at the expense of his own people. He chooses Team Rome to make money and be comfortable. But by Matthew chapter 9, he meets and he follows Jesus. And the transformation has begun. He goes from, I don't really care about anything, and everybody knows it, to, I really do care about something that's greater than myself. He goes from a place of, of pragmatic, unprincipled living to a place where he's willing to sacrifice of himself to follow this Jesus. And Jesus has made it very clear. Matthew knows where this is headed. Because Jesus has told him, and it's in Matthew's gospel, that, that you might as well just sell all that you have and give it up because you follow me, you're going to give it up anyway. Don't get tripped up by your stuff. Matthew, tradition says, by the end of his life, lost his head because he followed the Savior. He goes from, I don't care about all this Jewish stuff, to the place where he writes the most Jewish of the four Gospels. If he had cared about his people and their faith in the beginning, he wouldn't have trashed all their laws just to make money. But Matthew becomes the one who can help us make connections between what God was doing in the past with what he was doing with Jesus in the present and the future. He ties it all together. And that's why this book is so compelling. The setting for Matthew. What's the setting, part two of this? If this book is going to make sense, you have to have some history. You've got to know the context in which this happens. So, here's the context. God made the world. Pretty big context. Man sins. He messed up the world. So God has a decision to make. He's got a choice. Am I going to solve this problem or just wipe it out and start all over? And we know he decides to, you know, uh, what did I say? Did I give the same option twice? Did I? 
Is anyone listening? Okay. <laughs> we know God doesn't give up on the planet because he, he goes down the, the path of redemption. And so he begins to, to, to not just eliminate all the agents of evil that caused this, but solve the problem. And that's much more difficult to do than just erase and start over. So as the story progresses, God has a lot of communication with these people who are left on the earth, and he makes three promises that are kind of key in the Old Testament. The first one to Abraham, and he promises to Abraham, you'll be a blessing to the entire world. Moses comes along, he makes another covenant with Moses, and he says, if you do this, I'll do this. If you don't do this, I won't do this. And it's a very conditional covenant. Abraham didn't have to do anything. He was just going to get the blessings. By the time you get to Moses, it's conditional, if and then. He makes one third covenant, among others, but the most important for our story is the covenant with David. And David, he tells David, I'm going to make a kingdom out of you. I'm going to make a line of kings that comes after you. And David wasn't the best of people. There's some pretty major sin in David's life, but that was an unconditional covenant. I don't care what you do. A line of kings is coming out of you. And he is the founding king of a great line of kings. So you come to the New Testament, and people are asking, what? Well, when does all this happen? None of the political machinery is in place when the New Testament opens to make this whole kingdom thing happen. So people are freaking out a little bit. Some of them are concluding that the only way to get God to redeem everything is to fight hard and make sure we can set this up so God can come in and fix things. Some are concluding that God had forsaken them. It's all just over. Those old past stuff, forget about it. Might as well side with the occupiers, side with Team Rome, figure out how to make the most money and make it the best out of a bad situation. Some people actually still got it. They concluded that God was faithful. He's going to fulfill his promises. But these folks are pretty much in the minority. But the people were confused. They don't know what to look for. What's this king going to be like? What's this Messiah? And when Jesus shows up, there are 400 years of history. Here, years of institutions that have sprung up since the last prophet spoke. And all of these traditions, they make a lot of money, and they involve a lot of political power, and there's a lot of titles and a lot of prestige and a bunch of funny little outfits that they wear. And Jesus arrives to interrupt all of that, and we can actually relate to the reaction of the people. The reaction of the people is, wait a minute, I don't really like all this stuff that's going on either, but it's our stuff, and don't mess with my stuff. Because then I'll get mad at you. And the people are petty. Aren't we all? And they didn't want to lose their power. So when Jesus shows up, the question really is this. How many of the Messiah boxes does Jesus tick? I mean, if, if, if he claims to be Messiah, what's the proof? Because the Old Testament ended with a grand musical theme. Dum, da, da, dum, dum. No, you can't do that yet. <laughs> they hung with that for 400 years. Dum, da, da, dum, dum. And silence. And you can, the tension, 
You can feel it. Matthew wants us to believe that Jesus is the dum-dum. Oh, that's not to come out right. <laughs> he understands, I hope. <laughs> Jesus is the finishing phrase to that little ditty. But is he? And that's the journey of Matthew. So get out your Bibles. Here we go. We have a lot of text to cover. 27 chapters and 10 verses. And we're going to fly through. The flow of Matthew. You do remember the structure of Matthew, right? Because I really want you... Anytime you read Matthew, I want you to remember this. There, the book of Matthew is built around five sermons, five discourses. Okay? There's text, then there's a discourse, and he does all this stuff, and there's another discourse. More stuff, discourse, all the way through Matthew. The first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The second discourse is the missional discourse in Matthew 10, where he sends them out. This is an evangelistic endeavor. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Matthew 10, Matthew 13 is the, 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 we'll get, the, we're going to go through all this, where is the, the parables, the kingdom parables. What's this going to be like if Jesus isn't around? The third, par, the third um, discourse is Matthew 18, which is the church discourse, which is, you know, this church moving forward, it's going to be something different, but it's going to be also really hard because it's people. So how do you, how do, you do that? And then the final discourse, I didn't leave myself enough room, did I? Um, the final discourse is the Olivet Discourse. On the Mount of Olives, it's all about the future. It's the revelation of Matthew. And what does that look like? And so in between, there are stories and encounters that Jesus has that reinforce his theme. So Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole thing. Relax. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, uh, the son of Abraham. There's his theme. This is who Jesus is. He tells you right up front. There's nothing subtle about his conclusion. And then he goes through this long list of names. We looked at them in December once again. Because those names and those stories are the dum, da, da, dum, dum, dum. Oh, I'm not, not, I'm not. They're the, they're the setup. And Jesus is the, you know what, I got to think of a new, new way to say that. First century readers would not have missed the point of this genealogy. We don't get it, but that says more about us than it does about them. Matthew 2, 3, and 4, we get a closer look at this Jesus. We discover what, what the events and the, and the patronage that surround his birth. But all of it points to him as Messiah. He keeps quoting, this is, fulfills what the Old Testament said. He begins to talk about his mission. Who are the first to worship? It's the Gentiles. His whole theme is, is, is there in, in its initial form in Matthew 2. The Gentiles, the pagans, they kind of, Matthew tips his hand as to where this is going. Relate that to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus continues, though, to tick these boxes through chapter 3, through chapter 4. We watch his early life. More boxes are ticked. Math ticked. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We are at the Sermon on the Mount. His first of these five discourses. It's an elaborate description of what the kingdom really is about. This is, this is God's values. This is, this is the way this is going. And he provides us an explanation of what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. It's totally different about, from how people talked about religion all, uh, in the first century. 
See, we get the impression he's talking about building a new family, a family of faith. And this family of faith is an expression of the kingdom and of this king. And the values, they're completely upside down from the values of, of their religious system. So this kingdom Jesus talks about is in stark, stark contrast to what was happening in his day. Matthew 8 and 9, we come to, to off the mountain, the sermon is over, and what does he do? <laughs> Let's tick off some more boxes. He demonstrates in Matthew 8 and 9 his authority over everything, and I mean literally everything. By the time you get through Matthew 8 and 9, the, book of the, the theme of this book is very clear. Jesus is king. Today, if you say Jesus is king, people, eh, whatever, you know, it's not a very, you hear it a lot. But in Matthew, it is super important. You cannot leave the book of Matthew without coming to the conclusion that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He is the highest authority. He has unequaled power. He's not a king like you think of. He is unlimited by anything. He's, he's king over physics. He's king over time. He's the owner of morality. He is the author of love and faith. He is what final and maximum authority actually looks like. Read Matthew 8 and 9. He heals all kinds of different things. Matthew 10, we come to the second of these five discourses, the missional discourse. Here we discover the attitude Jesus has for himself and how people should respond. We learn the kingdom is evangelistic. I'm sending you out two by two. Go share the news. Give it away. That's the kind of kingdom I have. Matthew 11 and 12, they come back together again. And the message is actually quite simple. I'm king and people really ought to, to recognize me as king. And if somebody doesn't recognize me, then I'll move on. So obviously, the tension is beginning to rise. And the establishment doesn't like what's going on with Jesus very much. They push back. And the ministry becomes much less public and much more private and a lot less fun. And it turns private and, and he's got to deal with, with the old guard. They're, and their questions are all about the doing things. What's he doing on the Sabbath? And we learn that Jesus is master of the Sabbath. You know, he gets to decide how this whole religion thing works. He's the king. Matthew 13, we come to another series, another discourse, which is a list of parables. The third discourse. And Jesus gives this series of parables, and he explains, you know, this is what it's going to be like for the kingdom to, to play out. Because Jesus, he seems very, very credible. He seems very real. I mean, he can make sick people well. He can calm a storm. He can raise the dead. He can make withered and missing limbs just reappear again. He, he must be the real deal. And he's not doing it hidden. He's not sneaking around. He's doing it all very publicly. So you'd think that this kingdom is just going to steamroll over everything. He'll come to Jerusalem. They'll love him. He'll do his stuff. And they'll hail him as king. I mean, he's so powerful. Everyone, of course, they're just going to love him. And he will bring in the end of history. He'll bring in this Davidic kingdom. 
But these parables, they paint a very different picture. His kingdom's going to get messy. But don't get upset. God's in control. We learn of the value of this kingdom. The wise will see it and its value, and they're going to respond accordingly. We learn that we're supposed to participate in this kingdom. And this kingdom is, is growing up alongside the worldly kingdom. They're just both there. And Jesus paints a picture of something that's going to last and, and take a long-haul view. And he paints a picture of something where we wonder, why is he even keeping us all these people around? Why does he just get rid of the bad people, the weeds? Get rid of them. But we get a glimpse of the heart of the king and what's going on in his game plan. Matthew 14. Ah, now we're in familiar territory, right? You look at your titles there. You know, it, this all happens on one day, by the way. And John, well, he finds out that John the Baptist was beheaded. And he goes away to grieve. But he can't get away. The crowds follow him. And, and he's out there trying to grieve. And maybe, what, 10,000 people follow him? And he feeds them. But what do we learn about him? Well, we learn he's the provider, but in a rather surprising way. He commissions who? Flawed disciples who don't really get it to do the work. They do the distribution. They distribute the provision of God physically and spiritually. And at the end of the day, he walks on the water. We are now halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, 14 of 28 chapters, and Jesus says what? Matthew, 20, Matthew 14, 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, he's out on the water, it is I, don't be afraid. Literally what he says is take courage, I am. We see any patterns? From Matthew 1, Emmanuel, to Matthew 14, I am. All the stuff the prophet said about him, he is. And he speaks with authority like all the other teachers. He speaks with some, like someone who owns it all. So far, we didn't really say it yet, but a, but a demon has said, you are it. And now he says it of himself. I am. Matthew 15 and 16, the tension begins to ratchet up, and Jesus is under more and more stress and more and more pressure, and he shifts his attention even clearly, more clearly, away from the crowds and the masses to the people who are, who are, who are in, the disciples. And in Matthew 16, he takes them up north. It's time to have a little staff retreat. And they go up north. They meet this Canaanite woman and they go in this tree to retreat to, to Caesarea Philippi. And while he's training and coaching his disciples, he tells them, mm, for the first time, you know, I am going to die. And it's here they come around to understand what the demons has said is true and what the Canaanite woman has known for a long time, that it's really true. And it's there that they finally say the phrase, that if they said it out loud in Jerusalem would get them killed, either crucified or stoned to death. 
He say, they say, you are Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Sounds rather safe for us to say. We can say it all the time. But it wasn't safe back then. And it was blasphemy. And if you breathe those words to the wrong people, <laughs> you're dead. Matthew 17, he takes three of the disciples away. They go up to the high mountain, most likely the deserted area of Mount Hermon. And up there, God confirms what Peter had just said. And in front of three of the disciples, Jesus is transfigured into his heavenly glory. A first century Jew, you see, would want to know what? How does, if he really is the Messiah, how does he fit in with the flow of, of Jewish history, of the Old Testament history? Who, who needs to testify? Well, Elijah comes and testifies about his ministry with John the Baptist. The text tells us that. And who else shows up? The greatest lawgiver of all, Moses. Because if you're really going to be the Messiah, if you're really going to fulfill the whole sweep of biblical history, Moses is a pretty good person to testify for you. And so Jesus displays for them his glory. And the one person to, to, to validate who he really is comes along, Moses and then Elijah. In Matthew 18, we reach the fourth discourse, the one about the life of the church. And we spent some time looking at what the true church is, how God's plan for the church. What does it look like to get church right? And you know what the conclusion is? It's really hard. You've got to forgive. You've got to confront each other. It's tough. Matthew 19, there's a big change in the wind. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee. And went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. In the book of Matthew, he hasn't gone south before. He hasn't been to Jerusalem yet. Everything's been up north in Galilee. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. He's just moving from one dry, kind of deserty place to a really dry, really deserty place out on the other side of the Jordan. But this is really important geographically for what's going on here. And he's coming down south. And what does he do down south? The exact same thing he's been doing up north, healing and teaching. And here begins the only trip in Matthew to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and if we've been following, we know that means the end is near. Matthew 20, verse 17 now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. We do find it rather curious that they don't really quite grasp what all is going on here. But hindsight's always 20-20. And Jesus has been revealing bit by bit what is now in Matthew 20, only one week away. Matthew 16, he said he'd be mistreated by the, by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. In Matthew 17, he added, and they will betray me. And here in Matthew 20, he reveals that the leaders are going to turn him over to the Gentiles to mock him and flog him and kill him. Matthew 21, we come to rather familiar territory. 
the events of Palm Sunday and the temple cleansing. And this theme of Matthew resurfaces very clearly, I think. To us, it feels like, you know, if he really is Messiah, then what is he? He's the king of Jerusalem. And it's the holy city. So he's really coming home. He's coming to where he belongs. But that wasn't true in his day. Jerusalem is in somebody else's kingdom. It's enemy territory. Yet Jesus sees this as the place that is the home of his father and his father's house. So there's this huge contrast between this small crowd that shows up to welcome him, you know, Palm Sunday. They're not really very big, a motley crew. They show up, and what does Jesus go inside and do? He cleans up his father's house. It's like, whoa. He acts like he owns the place, but he can't even get a, a big crowd to welcome him. Matthew 22, he's forcing the opposition to do something. He's fighting back against him. All these little small groups, they come together, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they all confront him. And some of them even work together and they hate each other. And this is not going well. Matthew 23, it is, I believe, in Matthew 23 that the final die is cast. After what Jesus says in Matthew 23, he is going to die. He goes through these seven woes, woe to this, woe to that. It's a brutal condemnation of the religious systems and the leaders of the first century. He, he doesn't pull any punches, and he does it in public. Matthew 24 and 25, the disciples follow him up to the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. And we have the last of the five discourses, the Olivet Discourse, because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. The disciples, they want to know, they can sense this end is coming, and you've told us, you know, you're not going to be here, and we, we have to keep this going, and we don't understand. How are we going to do that? And You've talked about coming back, so, so when are you doing that? And when's the kingdom coming? And he goes into some prophecy and talks to them about that. Matthew 26. Matthew adds some tension to the story, as if we don't have enough already. Matthew says in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the end of the, the Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus says, now is the time. In two days, they'll arrest me, and, and we're going to do this. But what does verse 3 say? Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said or there may be a riot among the people. Oh, they're confirmed. We're going to kill this guy, but it isn't going to be now, not before Passover. It's too dangerous, but later. And what happens? In Matthew's gospel, he puts these two things right together so that we'll notice what? Who's really in charge? Who really is the king? Who's going to set the timetable for this? Is it the Pharisees and the religious leaders, or is it the Savior? And so when Judas comes to them and he reveals how they can find him and arrest him, now they got a problem. 
we got to do this now while we can get him. And so it seems they are forced to include the Romans, Pilate, Herod, soldiers, if they're going to accomplish what they need. Because we can't do this right before, before Passover. Why? Because they will be unclean. And they won't be able to celebrate Passover. Well, we can't have that happening. And so the only option, if they're going to get this done right away, what we've got him in custody, is to get somebody else to kill him. A few hours ago, they kind of assumed they'd have a couple of weeks to get their charges together, get all this, get their act together. But uh, now it's been forced upon them. They've got him like a bird in a cage. And so they hadn't been able to coach their witnesses, which was obvious. Everything's in chaos for them. They've got to be calm, though. They're religious leaders, and they've got to act soberly. But their case is stalling. They're not really making much progress through these trials. And Jesus, he wouldn't say anything. He won't defend himself. It's almost as if, yeah, no. He's not really trying to get this to happen, is he? And then the high priest had an inspiration. He would force Jesus under oath to answer this one question, Matthew 26, 63. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And now, now Jesus decides to speak. He's been quiet for so long. Now he speaks. Verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, of the, mighty, God, of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, shades of Daniel. It's an incredibly powerful statement. He says, I, yeah, I am the Messiah. But I'm also the Son of Man, which means, you know what? I'm going to come back, and I'm going to judge you someday. You can judge me now, but I will judge you, and I will deal with, your en- with you as my enemies, and I will establish judge- justice. And these words, they should have struck terror in the heart of the religious leaders. Instead, they took it as blasphemy. It was a capital offense by Jewish law. You do not survive the charge of blasphemy. Don't go out and buy green bananas. You're going to be dead soon. Matthew 27, he comes before the Sanhedrin. As the chapter opens, they get their act together. They've had some time. They come up with some formal charges. So what's next in Matthew? What's next is the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 11 next Sunday morning. The silence of Jesus at his his trials seems to be hurrying or hastening his death. And so we're going to follow this thread of who really is the king. And how does the sovereignty of God play out alongside the evil intentions of man? And it's setting us all up for the grand conclusion of the gospel of Matthew, which we really won't get to till after Easter, because you've got to do, you know, resurrection on Easter Sunday. So let me ask one more question. What have we learned in Matthew? So far, I think we've learned at least three things. Number one, this is maybe the most important, but it's not very dramatic. Bible study methods are critically important. Bible study methods are critically important. You have to put every verse within its context. I cringe now when I hear Matthew quoted as some proof text of whatever some author wants, uh, point they want to make. 
And I'm thinking, is that really what Matthew said? You've got to dive into the context of, of what's going on. It might be. But if we've learned anything from Matthew, it is the importance of context and purpose and theme. What's he trying to say? Now, I'm going to say something you're not going to like. I understand the role of a harmony of the Gospels. And it can be nice to read through it all, you know, as it all fits together. But be careful. If God wanted us to have a harmony of the Gospels, he could have made a harmony of the Gospels. But my argument is that there is nothing more rewarding than discovering what Matthew says and how he weaves clearly threads throughout his Gospel of the sovereignty of God and, and the nature of the kingdom and the stories and the teaching he includes in his gospel is you can learn just as much about that as, as the stories and teachings he leaves out, like two other trips to Jerusalem. They're not here. Speaks volumes about his intentions and what he's trying to argue. We've learned Bible study methods are critically important. Number two, we've learned our faith is foremost about being, not doing. There's not a lot of doing in Matthew. There's not a lot of, you know, the, like those seven letters. <laughs> they were rather pointed. Not so much in Matthew. Matthew begins with Emmanuel, God with us. And all the stuff that the prophets said about him, he is. He, he, this Jesus, he speaks with authority, not like the other teachers. He speaks as someone who owns it all. Even a demon is finally going to say, well, I am. You are, I am. And a Canaanite woman. And then Jesus finally says it. It's all language of being. Abide in me. It's the language of transformation. Of being a Christian. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Not a list of stuff to do. We notice the difference just having come from the letters of the churches to the revelation. The application of those letters was clear and cutting. You know, this is what you, think about this stuff. But in Matthew, you have the Han Solo of the New Testament who learned that God wants your heart. A God whose name is I Am. And God wants us to come to him on the level of being, not the level of doing. How often do we reflect a faith and a Christianity of a God who does not exist? I do, instead of I am. You see, our calling is the most natural outflow of a God who has called himself I am, the conjugation of to be. The call of Matthew is to be. Have you seen that? It would have been much easier for God to have written through Matthew a policy manual. What do you do when this happens? Don't dress like this for church. Never say these 10 words. Don't touch these things. Don't stand there. Don't ever vote for that. Don't think these thoughts and never think these thoughts. And if you memorize these 500 things and do these 500 things and don't do these other 500 things, then these other 5,000 things that protect you from doing those 500 things, if that's what Christianity is supposed to look like, God had all the time and all the words to write us a manual. The Bible's no policy manual because God wants your heart. 
This is not a business where we, we bring something to the table and negotiate with God. We have a king. He's a good king. He is a benevolent king. But the character of the kingdom flows out of the king himself. And that king is eternal. And so is his kingdom. So what's Matthew saying it is to be a Christian? Well, it isn't just one one-time prayer, although that's good, it's fine, but it's so much more than that. It isn't you just saying once in your life, you know, he's my savior, and you're done. It doesn't look like going to church or watching it online. It, is, it isn't some level of giving or some right political view or party. All that is what religion wants you to think and feel that it is. To be a Christian in Matthew is to be in Christ. To acknowledge Jesus as king at the level of your essence. To adopt his values and the values of his kingdom. And the priorities of his kingdom. And make them our own. In Matthew, our faith is foremost about being, is about, about being, not doing. Third lesson, we are all on a journey of transformation. Matthew paints a very interesting picture of a Christian. He's a follower. And he seems to say four things about how you really follow and what, what, what it challenges our thinking today. What's the pattern of his journey? Number one, you learn something about God. Once you learn something about God, number two, you take that truth and you let it change your life, which can happen in a moment, can happen, might take years. You let it change you. Third, you live differently. Why? Because you are a different person on the level of being. And life looks different for us because our heart has changed. Life looks different because our goals have changed. And life looks different because we're not just playing by the world's rules any longer. It's not get all my stuff now because life is short. No, life isn't. Life's eternal. And our core values are different because we live by his values and we're transformed at the core of our being. Paul later will say that the acts of the sinful nature should be obvious. So why do we need a manual? Is something in line with kingdom values? Then do it. But there's one element that has to be present if this is gonna work at all. We need a safety net, right? Because we are such flawed individuals and we aren't consistent. Number four, you live with an ethic of grace. There has to be an ethic of grace in Christian living. The king himself must be gracious and benevolent and forgiving, or else all we're gonna have is a policy manual, and he is. Grace must be present in our lives because the way he set this up it's pretty messy. So we got to give each other grace. God wants your heart. Jesus shouts it clearly and loudly. And yes, it can be scary, but it is transcendent. Maybe you need to come back to that understanding of the Christian life. Maybe you need to come back just to a simple heart that loves God. We live in a world of high anxiety. We live in a world today of wars, 
rumors of wars. The world is doing what the world does. Let it do it. We are not of this world. We are not called to fear. We are called to love. And in light of what we really know, how do we live today? I'm going back. We opened the Revelation series with this quote from, I don't know, some guy named C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Speaks again in this context to our world today. Written, I don't know when, in the 30s or the 40s. Can't tell you. He'll tell you what book it's from. I don't know. If, he writes this. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb... Let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our body. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. That is only true if you're living on the level of being, abiding in Christ, living with a simple heart of love. Matthew 27, 11, next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we pick it up from there. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and worthy. You are the God of endless glory. You are our Savior. You are our healer. Would you restore us? Hear us today crying out for you, for all you are. Please lead us back to your heart and to our King. In Jesus' name, amen.